Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 175, Marcellus of Ancyra. In this episode of the Trinity's Podcast, I'm going to explain to you the life and the theology of one of the most fascinating characters in the 4th century. And it turns out that there have been a lot of discoveries in about the last 40 years about this guy. And some consider him to be kind of like a key or a linchpin to understanding the whole controversy that followed the Creed of Nicaea in 325. Marcellus is one of those guys where all we have surviving from him are fragments that have been included in works hostile to him. Like the obsessive individual I am, I've gone and read all of those in English translation, and I've also made some good use of really excellent secondary literature on him. So in this first segment, I'm going to talk about his life and what kind of guy he was. He lived to an old age, and his life spanned most of this controversy, and I think he did have a central role in it. Marcellus was born probably before the year 285, and probably in Ankyra. Ankyra is now called Ankara. It's the capital of modern Turkey. Historians think that in 314, he probably presided over a small synod at Ankyra. The main purpose of that synod was to create policies to deal with the discipline of Christians who, under varying degrees of pressure, consented to the traditional pagan offerings which had been ordered for them in a bout of Roman persecution under the Emperor Maximius II. That persecution had ended the year before in 313. This is the same persecution I talked about in a previous episode, the one that Eusebius of Caesarea lived through and the one in which his teacher Pamphilus died. Marcellus is also known to have been at the Council of Nicaea in 325, although we have no specific information on what he did there. Some scholars think he was probably also present at the slightly earlier Anti-Arius Council in Antioch, which I discussed before. Whatever he did at those two councils, obviously he was on the Anti-Arius side, but it goes far beyond that. The new Nicene formulations seem to be a pretty good fit with Marcellus's views, as we'll see. He was on the winning side in 325, but Marcellus was to find out that he who lives by the council may also die by the council. About ten years later, at Tyre in 335, that's the council where Athanasius was deposed because of his many alleged crimes, Marcellus refused to go along with the decision. That year or the next year, he wrote a book called Against Asterius, denouncing a leader on the non-Nicene side by that name, someone who'd written in defense of the type of subordinationist theologies based on Logos theories, championed by Eusebius of Nicomedia and Eusebius of Caesarea. In that same year, 335, a synod at Jerusalem accused Marcellus of teaching doctrines like those of Paul of Samosata. This was a monarchian who had been deposed from his position as bishop of Antioch in 269. Monarchians basically are people in the end of the 100s and throughout the 200s and further on who did not go along with the Logos theory. They usually make the Logos or Word of God mentioned in John 1 out to be a mode or a property or an effect of God. Anyway, not a second God, something most of them would probably agree on. And again, this gets conjectural when you're talking about the older monarchians because we don't really have any of their full sources. But when it says the word was with God and the word was God, 
they think, well, yeah, it's the same God we were talking about before. It's not a second one that's been introduced. They would say a man and his word are not two men, and so a God and his word are not two gods. Anyway, Paul of Samosata had been deposed in 269 and had kind of entered into the list of heresiologies. Now there was this shortcut. Well, well, that sounds like Paul of Samosata. That's heresy. And so he was tagged with this in 335. And that tag, once it's put on you, is hard to remove. The tag of being a heretic. I've read at least one historian say that Marcellus even agreed to destroy his book against Asterius at that 335 meeting. But he didn't. He was charged with heresy again the next year in 336 at a council in Constantinople, but this time he refused to withdraw the book. So they deposed him, they took away his bishop position, and sent him into exile. And then he was on the receiving end of a polemical refutation like the one he had dished out. Eusebius of Caesarea wrote a book called Against Marcellus, which essentially accuses him of being a monarchian who absurdly implies that the father became incarnate and suffered, and also that Jesus was a, quote, mere man. When the emperor Constantine died in 337, that remixed everything. So people who had been sent into exile maybe could try to find a second chance. So Marcellus returned to Ancyra, but for some reason again was exiled a few years later. At this point, he writes a letter to Pope Julius in Rome and protests his innocence. And he travels to Rome. In the year 341, a council in Rome presided over by the Pope vindicates Marcellus and his friend Athanasius. Around this time, historians now believe that he huddled together with Athanasius, and the two of them came up with the idea that all of the non-Nicenes were, quote, Arians. They figured out this rhetorical move of sticking the name of Arius onto this whole eastern wing of theologians. They're all Arians, and this is the charge that Athanasius aggressively pushed for decades thereafter. And sadly, this was the account of the whole affair that really went down in history. People in the centuries after basically took Athanasius's word for it. And of course, he was a rough character and a very aggressive and unfair polemicist. You see a little bit of this in Marcellus, too, although he's not unhinged like Athanasius. Although, to be fair, you see it all around. The Easterners dished out about as much as they received. Now, remember what I called the aborted council? This was at Sertica in 343. It had been called to reconcile East and West. And one of the big issues between them is the Easterners had deposed Athanasius and Marcellus, and the Westerners had reinstated them. And the Easterners said, what the heck? These guys are in our jurisdiction. Athanasius is in Alexandria, and Marcellus is in Ancyra. And we Greek speakers have had legitimate meetings with bishops and we've kicked these guys out. Now you can't, thousands of miles away, reinstate them. So that was one of the big issues. The Westerners show up, they've decided that Marcellus and Athanasius are the good guys, and they insist that Athanasius and Marcellus are going to be a part of this meeting. The Easterners quite rightly complain that this is a bad procedure. You can't have people sitting as jurors at their own trial, so to speak. And they say, look, if you're going to do that, we're not going to meet. We're not going to have them be part of the meeting when their status is one of the things that we have to discuss. So the Easterners skedaddled. They left town, but before they did, they issued a statement denouncing Athanasius and Marcellus as heretics. And the Westerners, before departing, had their own little meeting. 
and declared Marcellus a most beloved brother and fellow bishop. In the couple of preceding years, they'd certainly heard Marcellus' side of the story. This is part of what they wrote. The book of our fellow minister, Marcellus, was also read, by which the fraud of Eusebius and his fellows was plainly discovered. For what Marcellus had advanced by way of inquiry, they falsely represented as his professed opinion. But when the subsequent parts of the book were read, and the parts preceding the queries themselves, his faith was found to be correct. He had never pretended, as they positively affirmed, that the word of God had his beginning from Holy Mary, nor that his kingdom had an end. On the contrary, he had written that his kingdom was both without beginning and without end. You see, this had been Marcellus's most controversial claim. He did say, and was notorious for saying it, that the reign of Jesus was going to end. That was based on his whole theology, as I'll explain, but particularly on this passage from Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 20. Paul says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says, all things are put in subjection, it is plain that this does not include the one who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who put all things in subjection under him, so that God may be all in all. This is obviously one of the many rifts in the New Testament on Psalm 110.1, which was viewed as a major prophecy about the exaltation of the risen Lord Jesus. In it, the psalmist says, Yahweh says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Paul then is talking about when Christ is fully in charge. And he's focusing on that word until. His idea is that when Christ fully gets everything wrapped up under his reign, then he turns around and hands it to God. Marcellus inferred from this that the kingdom of Jesus would come to an end. And this set people off. Isn't he supposed to rule from the throne of David forever? Isn't it an eternal kingdom? Isn't it the same as God's kingdom, which lasts forever? How can he say that the reign of Jesus is going to come to an end? Well, you'll see why he was able to say this when we fully explain his views about God and Christ. But for the moment, I'll just note that this is a main thing that really set people off about Marcellus's speculations. Now that he's been put on the... Um, the doo-doo roster of the East, he can't get his name off it. And so the Easterners repeatedly condemn him at councils. They start inserting this clause that the reign of Christ will have no end, which is directed against him. Although they're rejecting a lot more than that in his approach. Marcellus ended up being briefly restored to his position as bishop, but then Constantius II, who is taking the non-Nicene side, deposed Marcellus and exiled him again in 347. At this point, we don't know much more about Marcellus's life. He had been repeatedly condemned. That must have beat him down, made his life complicated. 
His friend Athanasius continued to defend his orthodoxy, and Marcellus probably went back to his home city, but he never again served as a bishop. My conjecture is that he's tired, old, beat down by the constant stress, by the constant wars of words and jockeying for position. He died no later than 375, and basically ended up going down in history with a bad name. The council, which basically ended these controversies in 381, insisted that Christ's kingdom will have no end, against Marcellus's notorious claim that it would. And it also singled out Marcellans as heretics. But the Nicene heresy hunter Epiphanius preserves a letter by disciples of Marcellus, which earnestly insists that they've always accepted the Orthodox Nicene faith in full. They damn all the right people that they're supposed to damn, according to the winning side. And they seem to be consciously correcting the perceived views of Marcellus. Christ's kingdom has no end. He's not a mere man. They accept multiple hypostases in God. Now, why are they even called Marcellans? Probably Marcellus is back home in Ancyra, even though he's not a bishop. He's still viewed as a leader. He's an older, distinguished man and a kind of theologian. There probably were people surrounding him that had views similar to his. It's quite possible, maybe even probable, that he was heading in a direction away from his old views and really trying to bring himself in line with what was about to be the winning side. Certainly, even in his 341 letter that he wrote to the Pope justifying himself, it sounds like he's already downplaying his distinctive views. What kind of guy was Marcellus? Having read all of his surviving fragments, I have an impression of him. He was a controversialist, highly opinionated, a bit creative. He does adopt a nasty, harsh, and superior tone, but that's pretty common. He actually insults Origen and Asterius, and he bashes the whole Nicene side as too dependent on Greek philosophy. I would say that he's right about that, actually. There's quite a lot of Greek philosophical influence in the way that these Logos theorists think, especially in the case of Origen, but even going back as far as Justin Martyr. He also bashes the Eusebians of his day for trusting too much in this great master Origen. And I think he's right about that, too. I think he's wrong to bash Origen and dismiss him as just a speculator and not a scholar of scriptures. But in my view, the problem with Origen is not that there was a person like that, but that there weren't enough guys willing to disagree with him. There weren't other scholars of similar accomplishment and similar training. So there was kind of a cult around Origen on the other side at this time. They are very deferential to him. They don't treat him just like a philosopher who needs to be disagreed with, somebody who could be incredibly insightful and just really full of crap sometimes. That's how any philosopher is. And so they shouldn't be idolized, nor should any theologian be idolized and treated as an authority like an apostle. That's kind of what they were doing, people like Eusebius and Pamphilus and the other Eusebius. So he's right, I think, to complain about these things. But the question is, is his theology better? Like everybody at this time, he imagines that he is just giving sober exposition of Scripture and the other guys are speculating. Well, in fact, he's got a theory too. And later in this episode, we're going to find out what that is. When the Trinity's podcast returns, who is this Asterius that Marcellus wrote against? 
And what are his main complaints against people like Asterius or the Eusebians? So who was this Asterius who Marcellus wrote a whole book against? We don't know when he was born, although he was born in Cappadocia, in Asia Minor. He was referred to as a sophist or a sophist, someone trained in the art of speaking and maybe somewhat in philosophy. Unfortunately, in the persecution that I mentioned earlier, he couldn't stand up to the test and he sacrificed to the Roman deities. Did he just chicken out or was he tortured viciously into it? Who knows? In any case, it kind of tarred him a little bit and prevented him from ever being a bishop. And I think if we're going to get self-righteous about this, we need to remember that Peter three times denied Christ, and yet he's one of the greatest Christians and the greatest Christian leaders of all time. I can't imagine what I would do if I were being physically tortured. I know what I would try to do. I know what I would hope to do. He was among the people that Athanasius refers to as the Eusebians, this school of theology that was originist and had the Logos being a divine being, a second divine being, even a second God, but not God in the same sense that the Father is the one God. He wrote some kind of little book arguing for this side, and he seems to have traveled widely. Historians guess that it was written around 320 or 321, I would guess that because of his training, it was a well-done book in the sense that it was eloquent and maybe even well-argued. Historians think that it was considered a kind of standard, maybe even a kind of manual by these Eastern theologians before the Council of Nicaea. About Asterius' theology, it's really just the same kind of theology that Eusebius of Caesarea had. It's just a little more unguarded in its language, uh, slightly stronger and how it expresses the difference between God and the Son of God. The Father and Son, he says, are two natures, two hypostases, that is two entities, two substances, two prosopa, two persons, two personal beings. Marcellus says, aha, two gods. And in fact, this tradition had not been totally against calling them two gods, although they would stress the uniqueness of the Father as a way to defend their monotheism. In one of his existing fragments from this book against Asterius, which has been numbered 91 by the editor, and in this passage he uses the word monad to refer to the unique God, that is, the Father. He says, Unless we pay attention to the Spirit and consider the monad to be undivided with respect to power, will we not be sinning? For the Word teaches us, Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Matthew 4.10 He also declares the same in the Gospel according to Mark. For when a certain scribe approached him and asked, What is the foremost commandment? He answered him, saying, The foremost one of all is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your soul and with all your strength. This is the foremost. And the second is like it, Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, well put, teacher, you have spoken the truth in saying that God is one and there is none besides him. Mark 12, 28-32 
The scribe seems to have learned how to worship God through the law and is evidently praising the statement of the Savior who said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And he confirms that he has spoken well with an oath, for he says, You've spoken the truth in saying that God is one, and there is no one else besides him. And yet they who boast that they know the mysteries of the New Testament want to invent a second God, who is distinguished from the Father with respect to hypostasis and power. So a main concern of Marcellus is monotheism, and he's going to bash the Eusebians or the non-Nicenes as often as he can on that score. Further, he charges them with saying that the Savior is just a man, although he says they dare not say this openly. Somehow they're only paying attention to the dispensation of the flesh, and they're not noticing that God is there, that is the Word. He quotes Jeremiah 17:5, Cursed is the man who has his hope in a man. Now this is strange and a little concerning. He says about the Eusebians that they want the Savior to be a man. Well, yeah, but doesn't every Christian? He jumps between saying that Jesus is a man and saying that he's just a man. And those aren't necessarily the same thing. Doesn't he want him to be a man too? It's unclear. He likes to talk about the word getting flesh In some passages, it sounds like Marcellus just has this eternal word, and I'll talk about what that is shortly, just getting a body. But it's not clear that the word and a body is a real man. Marcellus insists that before the cosmos is made, only God exists, that is the Father. There's not also a second God there. Further, he's concerned about worship. He points out that in the Shema, repeated in the New Testament, there's only one person who is both Lord and God. And he notes the singular pronouns me and I that God uses when insisting on his uniqueness. It's not we are unique, it's I am unique, I am the one God. He says these singular pronouns and the singular verbs that are in those sentences witness to, quote, the monad of the deity. God, he says, is not a God, but is the God. He quotes them Malachi 2.10, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? He harshly charges that Asterius and company are blaspheming in separating God from his word and calling that word a second God. Interestingly, he's also against the tradition of projecting the pre-human Jesus back into all the God appearances in the Old Testament. Now, why did they do this? It's very transparent why they initially did this. It's right on the surface of Justin Martyr toward the end of his dialogue with Trypho the Jew. Justin thinks that God, the one true God, the Father, is just too transcendent. He dwells in inaccessible glory and can't possibly come down to earth or even interact directly with earth or even directly create the earth. Consequently, anyone called God or Lord in the Old Testament who is seen or physically perceived in any way has got to actually be someone else. Not, in fact, the one God, but instead his word, the Logos this other god, an intermediary. So as I mentioned in a previous episode, they then find the word all throughout the Old Testament, doing what, on the face of it, it's said that God was doing. It's really the word who speaks to Moses, who wrestles with Jacob, uh, and who appears in various other ways. This is something that's just not in the New Testament. There's only one or two passages that even can be taken to suggest that the pre-human Christ is active in patristic times. It's just not a theme there. It's not a clear teaching there. 
Well, this was clear to Marcellus and probably to his whole group of people. There was probably going back into the 100s Westerners who were dubious about this theory. So he objects to this hypothesized Old Testament ministry of the word, and he tries to refute it in one of his fragments. In number 85, he says, Now who does Asterius think that one is who says, I am the one who is, Exodus 3.14, the son or the father? He's using there the Greek translation, which translates uh, God as saying that he is Ha'on, the one who is. And he's taking being in kind of a philosophical sense, like the one who has existence of himself or the ultimate being. And he's saying, well, that can't be the word, which is an expression of that being. And certainly not the man Jesus, who is properly called son. Okay, but that doesn't really settle the issue. The Logos theorists are going to think that the son can say on behalf of the father, I am the one who is in his mediatory role. It'd take a lot more than that to make any headway in that dispute. When the Trinity's podcast returns, my interpretation of Marcellus's theology and the key role he plays in the post-Nicaea disputes. Let me first say that by far the best book about Marcellus is by a Jesuit scholar named Dr. Joseph Leonard. The book is published in 1999 and is called Contra Marcellum, Marcellus of Ancyra and Fourth Century Theology. This is an exceptionally good book. It's very careful in how it deals with Marcellus and it builds on a lot of English and German language scholarship of the last hundred years. It's also extremely insightful, I think, for understanding the whole fourth century. This is one of the best books I've read on 4th century theological disputes. My only complaint about it is, as a Roman Catholic Trinitarian, he wants to view both sides as feeling their way towards the eventual position that is accepted, as if they're trying to find out how God is both one and three. Well, that's kind of projecting a later viewpoint back into the time, but he is such a careful scholar, I don't really think it distorts his interpretations in a significant way. I did find his book very helpful. The main point to understanding Marcellus is that if you're talking about Father, Son, and Spirit, there's only one self there. Leonard calls this a mia hypostatic theology, a theology on which there is one hypostasis, that is one being. He denies that there are two beings there. There aren't two of anything there. There are not two essences. There are not two powers. There are not two hypostases. There are not two gods. Now, isn't this just a modalist or Sabellian view? Basically, yes, it is. It's that type of view. In one of his extant fragments, number 69, he denies being a Sabellian, but he doesn't really tell us what the difference is supposed to be. In any case, the Father is the one God. I would describe the Word and the Spirit for Marcellus as extrinsic modes. They're ways that God is, but they're extrinsic to his essence. They are God exercising his powers in two different ways. He thinks that God's Spirit and God's Word are eternal 
in the sense in which their powers that God has, powers to act in a certain way, they're not eternal insofar as they're exercised outside, so to speak. The exercises of those powers are in time for the management of the cosmos and the salvation of humans. God's word is fundamentally just that by which God creates. And that's the Old Testament conception of God's word. He cites Psalm 33.6 and Psalm 107.20. If you're talking about God and his word, there's only one being there. You can make a distinction, but it's not a distinction between two beings. Just like if you talk about a man and his thought or his speech, those aren't two beings. It's just the one being and then what that one being does. In fragment 73, Marcellus is discussing Jesus or Christ, and he says, If the examination were only of his spirit, then the word would rightly appear to be one and the same thing as God. But if the addition of the flesh to the Savior is examined, then the deity seems to be widened only with respect to activity, such that he is rightly indivisible because he is a unit. So God doesn't split into three beings, but he, in time, decides to work in two different ways. And that's the word of John 1 and the Spirit, which is sent later by Jesus. Again, the Holy Spirit is not someone else. That's just God in action. This is an Old Testament conception of God's Spirit. God's Spirit is not somebody in addition to God, but it's something like a manifestation of God's power. For instance, in several passages, the Spirit of God comes down and then people will prophesy. God the Father always existed, but in his view was not always a father. The Word was always existing eternally, but was not expressed eternally. It's going to sound outrageous to say that God was not always a father to the originist, but it's not clear why it is outrageous. I can say things like, my father existed in 1950. That doesn't imply that he was at that time a father of me or of anybody. He wasn't. But it's true that my father existed in 1950. And it's not obviously outrageous to say that God the Father existed before he had anyone to be a father to. That's not a contradiction in terms. So if you want to talk about a trinity with a small t, you can do that. You could talk about Marcellus's view of the triad. He thinks that there was a monad originally, which is expanded into a triad. You still have the Father there, and now you have this word and spirit. And so there's a kind of threeness there, but it's really just an utterly simple being, which is now working in two different ways. When talking about this thing mentioned in John 1, he only wants to call it word. He doesn't want to call it the eternal son. And the many titles that are applied to Christ, like image of God, son of God, light, truth, and so on, he wants to apply those to the stage where there's a man or at least a flesh involved. So in eternity or before the incarnation, he only wants to talk about the word. When the word becomes flesh, then he thinks those other titles strictly apply. There's something that's really problematic to me about Marcellus's views, and I think this is typical of some of these views at the time. It's really unclear whether or not there's a man involved in the Incarnation. Remember, Athanasius seems to really stridently and clearly say that there's just the Word and a body. This doesn't make any sense because he says it's only the flesh that suffered, and according to this dualistic view of humans, a body on its own is not a subject of experience. It's not a subject of consciousness. So Athanasius needs there to be a human soul or spirit in addition to the body, and then also the Word but he refuses to take that view. Marcellus, I think, is just confused about it. 
it looks like he needs there to be a man there because he says that there can be a weakness of will and a temptation. Well, then there has to be someone who is being tempted. He says that the flesh receives authority from God and serves as the mediator between God and man, as Paul says. This flesh is glorified by God. This flesh is beloved by God. So it sounds like the flesh has to be a man. It sounds like he's distinguishing Jesus from the Word. And yet he habitually talks about the Word assuming human flesh. And sometimes when he's talking about the individual body here, he'll use the word flesh. When he uses the word man, he'll mean like mankind, like the platonic universal of human nature. It seems to me he's just having it both ways. He's just confused about this. Now, what about this reign of Christ coming to an end? Why did the council at Sertica say, no, no, he never said that? My interpretation is as follows. What he thinks comes to an end is the reign of this flesh. So if he's thinking there's a Jesus and not just a word, that there are two persons, he thinks that the reign of Jesus comes to an end once it's served its purpose in the economy of salvation. What continues forever, and at this time the uh, extension of the monad is undone, and so the word can just withdraw to back within the Father. So I think what he convinced the council of is that the reign of the Logos, or the Word, is eternal. How dare they say I said anything was coming to an end? Well, what was coming to an end was the reign of the man, or if you like, of the flesh. And maybe Marcellus just conjectured this and kind of wondered out loud about it. And this would be why the council that vindicated him said that what he had put forth just as conjecture was being treated as a dangerous assertion. Now, whether you think there's a man or not, it's bizarre what should happen if the word withdraws back into the Father. What happens? Does the body just fall down dead now? Jesus just dies and that's the end of the ministry and existence? The normal Christian view is that Jesus remains a human forever. To summarize my case, as I understand him, Marcellus is like a latter-day one-self Trinitarian in that the one God just is a single self. But he's not a Trinitarian for two reasons. For one thing, in his view, the one God is the Father, just like you see in the New Testament. You don't have him saying that the one God is the Trinity. Furthermore, the three persons, if you can call this three persons, they're not eternal. In eternity, the Word and the Spirit are just attributes of the Father or powers of the Father. They have a kind of undivided, uh, extended existence for a time, uh, but that's a finite time ago. Whether this extension lasts forever, well, never mind that. In any case, these persons as additional somethings are not eternal. Now, does Marcellus believe in the deity of Christ? Yes, in the sense that he thinks that the body that Mary bore contained or was a vehicle for God's expressed word. Remember, the expressed word is just God's action. Whatever it does is really what God does. It was God himself who animated this body. This is a lot like people today who insist on, quote, the deity of Christ. They think that's just God, as in God himself. And they have a similar problem regarding whether or not there's really a man there, or if this is just God puppeting a body. So the number of beings in this triad is one. There's only one hypostasis and one usia there, namely God the Father. If Leonard's interpretation is right, then the Holy Spirit is just another such action of God starting on the day that Christ was raised from the dead. In sum, Marcellus is a Unitarian who believes in the deity of Christ. 
and in a similar way in the deity of the Holy Spirit. His position is very similar, in my view, to recent Oneness Pentecostals. Yes, he really was a monarchian. He was a fourth century example of that type of thinking. But of course, just damning him as a Sabellian, etc., was a rough and unfair response to his theories. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Marcellus has a key to understanding the Nicene Controversy and his exegesis of the Bible, good, bad, and ugly. Historian R.P.C. Hansen says this, We can, however, draw one confident conclusion from this examination of a theological tradition which was neither Alexandrian, nor Arian, nor Western, and which owed nothing to origin. If we are to take the creed of Nicaea at its face value, the theology of Eustathius and Marcellus was the theology which triumphed at Nicaea. That creed admits the possibility of only one usia and one hypostasis. This was the hallmark of the theology of these two men. In a slightly later essay, in a really important paper by Michel Barnes, called The Fourth Century as Trinitarian Canon, Dr. Barnes expands on this theme. He says, The theology of Marcellus made explicit the very implications feared by most of those who had condemned Arius and signed the Creed, with the result that the immediate problem after Nicaea was not the subordinationism of Arius' theology, but the modalism seemingly condoned by the language of the creed. We have evidence, for example, Eusebius of Caesarea's ecclesiastical theology and against Marcellus to suggest that the Marcellan position had become a problem very quickly. Similarly, we have evidence, Athanasius's On the Incarnation, that with the condemnation of Arius, even Nicenes considered the issue of Arius settled and so moved on to other topics as if he no longer existed. After Nicaea, the object of concern and condemnation is Marcellus, not Arius. The long litany in the East of conciliar condemnations of Marcellus, appearing almost annually and stretching into the early 350s, makes clear the depth of the antipathy towards a Marcellan reading of Nicaea. Such conciliar condemnations also reveal the enduring suspicion that Nicaea's theology was modalist after all. Marcellus was the spokesman for those whose theology owed almost nothing to origin. Marcellus, a Greek, emphasized the unity of the divinity over all else, and he seems to have asserted his doctrine most purely in a denial of any attribution of two, much less three, to the Godhead. Marcellus denied that we could speak of two usiae, to hypostases or to dunamis, to powers in God. To use any such language was to imply that there were two divine things, two gods. Marcellus's Trinitarian theology is wholly centered in a logos theology in which divine unity is described by analogy to the unity between a speaker and the speaker's word. The word exists within and then it goes out, is uttered. That going out was a moment of creation, not most emphatically a not because the Logos is created, but because creation is an act of the Logos, or more precisely, an act of God via his Logos. 
And a bit farther down, Barnes continues, The Marcellan claim on Nicaea seems not to have been simply a development after the fact, as though Marcellus made a claim on an event which was otherwise unconnected to his sphere of theological influence. Recent scholarship comparing the creed of the Council of Antioch early in 325, which promulgated doctrines favorable to Alexander and condemned Arius, with the creed of the Council of Nicaea late in 325, has suggested that the very wording of the Creed of Nicaea bears the theological fingerprint of Marcellus. Barnes is saying that Marcellus became the poster boy for Nicaea as capitulation to monarchianism. And you can see why. He really was of that school. And again, Nicaea had said that father and son are homoousion, the same being or one in being, and it says that the Son has been begotten from the substance of the Father, like from the being of the Father. These key innovations admit of a Marcellan reading, and all the Easterners were picking up on this. And in fairness, this is a way to get monotheism. You can make a scriptural case for Eusebius's view, but you can make, at least on the face of it, an initial case for this view as well. Before we go, I want to talk a little bit about Marcellus's exposition, his exegesis of certain lightning rod passages in all these disputes. He has an interesting perspective. Colossians 1 is nowadays a favorite proof text for the idea that the pre-human Jesus created the cosmos. In our prayers for you, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Since the day we heard it, we have not ceased praying for you and asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may lead lives worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him as you bear fruit in every good work and as you grow in the knowledge of God. May you be made strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power, and may you be prepared to endure everything with patience, while joyfully giving thanks to the Father, who has enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him, all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. And you who were once estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his fleshly body through death, so as to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him, provided that you continue securely established and steadfast in the faith without shifting from the hope promised by the gospel that you heard, which is proclaimed to every creature under heaven. Now, is Paul in the middle of this passage slipping into point about Jesus being the creator of the world 
Or is he talking about the new creation, the work which was accomplished by Christ in the first century? Marcellus reads this, and this is in numerous of his fragments, as being entirely about Christ's post-birth career as a man. It's not about his being the direct creator back in Genesis. If he's the image of the invisible God, he's got to be bodily. He's got to be observable. The image isn't the thing it's image of, and so he thinks there must be a body involved. I think he's right that the whole context of Colossians 1 is the new creation. Paul's talking about Christian salvation, for one thing, before and after the passage in question. And for another thing, he doesn't say that Christ is the creator of the heavens and the earth, but rather of all things in the heavens and in the earth. And he gives examples of what seem to be like spiritual powers. Christ is before all things in authority and position, that is, before all things in the cosmos, not before God, of course. And in Christ, all things hold together, that is, he is the source of this new order. He's the organizing principle of it, so to speak. And as Paul says in verse 18, he's the head of the body, the head of the Christian church. All first century. Once you see this, I think you can see that Paul is not suddenly changing the doctrine that it was the Father who was the one creator. Speaking of creation, he has his take on the much commented statement in Genesis where God says, let us make man in our image and likeness. And why the us? The Sebians would say, well, he must be talking to another. He must be talking to the other God, this Logos, understood as a person. Marcellus agrees that God was talking to his word in this passage, but he thinks that the word is not somebody else. About the word, Marcellus says in fragment 98, To him the Father said, Let us make man in our image and likeness. There is no other God who is able to form things together with him. For he says, I am the first God, and I am after these things, and besides me there is no other God. Isaiah 44, 6. So there was not some younger God or some other God after these things who was able to work with God. But in case someone would like to use some small human everyday example and examine the divine act as through an image, any skillful sculptor, when he plans to form a statue, first pictures in his mind its forms and features. Then he considers what the fitting height and width is and arranges the proportion of everything part by part. He prepares the appropriate material bronze and first strikes the statue to be with his intelligence. He does not begin until he is convinced that he has seen it mentally, conscious of the fact that his reason works together with him. By it he reasons, and by it he is accustomed to doing everything, for nothing is done without reason. And then, when beginning this perceptible work, he calls to himself as if talking to someone else, saying, Come, let us make, come, let us form a statue. In this way, God, the Lord of all, when making out of earth a statue with a soul, called not to someone else, but to his own reason, the word, let us make man, in the same way as with other things, for the entire creation came to exist by the word. I think Marcellus is right that it's not obvious that God is supposed to be talking to somebody else. He could just be talking to himself. Although I tend to agree with modern interpreters who suggest that he's supposed to be talking to his heavenly court there. Of course, when it comes time to create, as Michael Heiser and many people have pointed out, the verbs there are singular. 
So he says, let us make, but in any case, he does it himself. I think Marcellus is right about that too. Another interesting passage is John 10, 30, where Jesus says that I and the Father are one. Marcellus jumps on this like it's a metaphysical statement. He means that God and his word can't be divided, so they're not two. So again, it's just a thing and a mode of a thing, or a thing and an action of that thing. And there aren't two beings there. This is, you know, to take it to be way more metaphysical than the context demands. Asterius takes the obvious reading here that the father and son are agreeing. They're one in will and one in purpose. Marcellus objects to this that sometimes their wills differ. So the agreement isn't exact. Says that he's come not to do his own will, but to do his father's. And the case when Jesus doesn't want to be crucified and he asks if he can be excused. But this isn't to the point. For what Jesus said to be true on that interpretation, they don't have to agree completely in all circumstances. It just has to be generally true that they're about the same work, that they're working to establish one kingdom. Again, he runs into this problem, though. It looks like he needs there to be a man there, and he doesn't want to say that there was. Another hot spot is Proverbs 8, uh, and everybody takes this to be about the Logos, although on the face of it, it's just about wisdom. It's just a colorful personification of God's wisdom and the kind of wisdom that you and I can obtain. But in some renderings, Lady Wisdom there says that God created me. The Eusebians say, aha, this is about eternal generation. But Marcellus and Athanasius following him insist that, no, no, this is really just about Christ's flesh. This talk of creation is really about the initiation of the words career in a body. To say that the Lord created me is to talk about the word becoming flesh so that he can be the firstborn of the new creation. And then he kind of goes to town allegorizing the passage. The earth that it mentions in the passage represents our flesh. The depths mentioned are really the hearts of the saints. The springs, mountains, and hills are really the apostles. Okay, this is far-fetched, Marcellus and his opponents pointed this out. So the part about being created, he wants to say, is just about the incarnation, the human or quasi-human stage of the Logos' career. However, he'll take other parts of that same passage to actually refer to creation and just to make the point that the Word was then with God, again referring to John 1. Again, is Jesus really a man? Is there a man involved in the incarnation? It seems that he needs there to be one, and it seems that he needs there to not be one. One thing he says that really is striking is that when Jesus speaks and uses the word I, this has got to be referring to God. Really? In every case? God seems to be somebody else most of the time. Or are we supposed to divide Jesus' statements and actions between two different ones? And sometimes it's the man or the human nature doing things, and sometimes it's the divine nature that's speaking or doing things. It's just a mess. Why does this matter? Well, the New Testament clearly portrays an interpersonal relationship between Jesus and God. So can there possibly be an interpersonal relationship there? The Word is not a second person, and so can't really have an interpersonal relationship with God. There's one self too few there. That would just be God relating to himself, talking to himself, quote, cooperating with himself. 
What if you say then, well, okay, the flesh, just speaking loosely, when I say the word became flesh, I mean that he, in later terminology, assumed a man. Okay, then you have a man, Jesus, and this Jesus can trust in God, can pray to God, can have a will that could possibly differ from God, and yet he cooperates with God and acts as God's agent and does God's work on God's behalf, and who can now serve as an intermediary, as we see in the New Testament, in the Gospels and beyond. Okay, but then there's also this word, and so it looks like we've got too many Jesuses. If you wanted to say that the word is the pre-human Jesus, well, that's not right anymore on this view. There isn't a pre-human Jesus. Are we supposed to think that the word and Jesus are friends? That they cooperate? They get along really well? Too many Jesuses is a big problem in Christology. The word for theorists like Marcellus is far more important than the flesh or the man, if there is a man in this situation. It's the word which saves. It's the word which divinizes humans. Leonard says this, Marcellus never mentions Christ's suffering and death. Like Athanasius, he sees the moment of the incarnation itself as the decisive moment in the history of salvation. Once the word assumed flesh, he assumed the whole human race and made its history his own. Wow. To my eye, it looks like, for thinkers like Marcellus and Athanasius, incarnation theory has hijacked the theory of atonement. This is quite contrary to what you see in the New Testament. The crowning achievement, the moment of victory there, is that time of his death and resurrection and exaltation. That's when Christ does his work as Savior. There's no mention of this hypothesized golden moment when Mary conceived miraculously, and boom, that changed humanity. Somehow. Boom, salvation was accomplished right there. Not in the New Testament. Athanasius runs far with this theme in some of his books, of course. What do you think? Do you think atonement was basically accomplished in the latter half of a Friday on through part of a Sunday? Or do you think it happened about 30-some years before that? Next week on the Trinity's podcast, another notorious 4th century character and a one-time student of Marcellus. His name was Photinus. This week's thinking music has been the track Manly Nun Steps Out by Dr. Turtle. If you love the Trinity's podcast, please share the podcast on social media. Another thing you can do is give us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can support the podcast by giving us a one-time or a monthly donation through PayPal. Just look for the orange buttons on the right side of any blog post. Lastly, make your voice heard. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode, or join our very active Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. Don't forget then to share, to rate, to chip in when you can, and to talk back. listening. 
We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.